Welcome to the Chronic Spoonful podcast, where we discuss real life with real chronic illness. Each week, we'll cover an aspect of real life spoony living and what that can mean for different chronic illnesses. We hope this will be a place you can go for updated spoony info and where you'll find humor because, you know, we're a little crazy, important information, and community. As a disclaimer, we just want to remind you that, yes, we'll be talking about chronic illness and health information, but we are not your doctor. Everyone's chronic illness is different, and we are absolutely not MDs, so we are not qualified to give you medical advice. We're going to tell you unequivocally to discuss anything we talk about on this podcast with your doctor. All right. Okay, everyone. Welcome back to the Chronic Spoonful podcast. We are so excited to be talking to you today, and we have a very special guest. We have Jean Marie, who's going to talk to us about something I wanted to talk about for a long time, which is Lyme disease and chronic illness. Um, I think people have a lot of misconceptions about Lyme disease. Uh, people don't even realize it can be a chronic illness. And so Jean Marie is going to talk to us about it, and we get to ask her all the quest- burning questions we have inside about this. Um, and how, you know, she lives with this chronic illness and its diagnosis and everything else. So welcome, Jean-Marie. Hey, everybody. Hey, so tell us a little bit about yourself and and Lyme disease and how it's affected you. Um, well, my journey started back in the 2000s. Um, in the early 2000s, I was a professional stage manager on the East Coast, uh, mostly met- metropolis of Manhattan. So maybe about half an hour north. I did a lot of community regional college theater there, um, and I ended up stage managing an international music festival. Um, And I was not a country bumpkin. I'd originally been born in Yonkers. Um, So I was a city girl that kind of got thrown up into nature. And um, about halfway through the music festival, so it was the end of July, August 2006, um, I felt like what I thought was a bee under my shirt. And Uh, I was with uh, two other people that worked the music festival and I started acting as if like a bee was stinging me. I was, it was like a a moment of pain. And, Hmm. and I said, I'm going to be inappropriate. And I lifted my shirt to see what it, for them to like scoop the bee out or whatever it was. And both of their faces just dropped and turned to ashen. And I had a six to seven inch um, EM rash on my torso with a big center inflamed and it just like touched my shirt the wrong way. And I had no idea I had had that. We were, it was a music festival. I probably hadn't showered in three days. I hadn't, you know, done a body check. I didn't even know about ticks at that point. Um, and they just- you, you were living in the city. They're- yeah, they had no idea what, I mean, they, they knew, but they, it wasn't a welt from a wasp or anything like that. It was, uh, I immediately called my mom who was a registered nurse and she goes, we know exactly what that is. Uh, you need to get to the doctor and get tested. So I went to the doctor, but with Lyme disease, it gets complicated because if you go to the doctor too soon, the test will always come back negative. Okay. And because of the way the medical journal is written, they, especially back in 2006, they weren't going to treat you unless you had the positive test. So it was kind of that catch 22. Um, so I got the traditional four weeks of doxycycline. He agreed. It looked like the tick rash. Um, he said, well, wait back for the test. It'll, you know, it'll be fine. And then for the next four weeks, it was living hell. It was falling asleep at work at 2 PM on my, on the desk, like head on the, on the desk, people walking into the office and I'm asleep. Um, barely being able to walk, having chronic fevers, chronic sweats, confusion, 
um, not being able to drive home after a work shift, things like that, more and more pain. And at the end, um, the doctor called me back and he goes, good news, it's, neg it's negative. And I said, okay, great, what's next? And he goes, I don't know what you mean. And I said, what's next? Cause I'm getting worse with every dose of doxycycline, I'm getting worse. Yeah. So something's still wrong, what do I do next? And he goes, um, well, it's negative. And he basically hung up on me, like, wow. like dial tone. There's nothing more I can do dial tone. And that was the doctor. <laughs> Gosh. So what do you do? So I immediately- You're looking passed. up Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So I found a local LM, LLMD, and I'm going to try to get through the podcast without saying his name, but he's a famous New York uh, East Coast doctor, but he only treats with antibiotics. He does not, at the time in 2006, he didn't even like, oh, if you want to do vitamin C, that's on you. Just let me know what you're taking. Like he had no herbal remedies, no supplements, antibiotics, that's it. Um, and I went to him for over four years. It was a big thing back then though, too. Like they didn't mm -hmm. believe in any supplements. They didn't believe in naturopathic medicine back mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of doctors were, were avoiding it, to be yeah. honest. They yeah. would only give you pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And they really didn't know what they were doing with it. Right. I'm so glad that we've been blessed with more, more research and more people that are willing to, to kind of yeah. pave the way for that. I agree. I agree. So you saw him for four years. Mm -hmm. What did he do in those four years to help treat you? Did he diagnose you with the Lyme disease? Did he? he? He did diagnose me with the Lyme disease. We went through a bunch of questions. He said, it's clearly that there's co-infections at the same time, because um, just be aware that it's not just Lyme disease. So even if you take the doxy, odds are there's something else in that tick. I believe <laughs> in one of the most recent researches that there can be over 200 different types of parasites and vectors inside one tick bite. Oh my gosh. Um, so wow. there's, um, there's the five or six that they, they test for. And I've, um, for, I don't know what it's called, but when they go through your, your head to toe symptoms and they kind of divvy up what columns each things fall into. Um, I had Lyme disease, Babesia, Bartonella, and then later on in this, in this timetable, I also had anaplasmosis and they're not sure if that came from a second tick bite later because mm. that I wasn't diagnosed with anaplasmosis until 2013. And it was, um, like a new hit of symptoms. So I was like back in bed. It was a whole new wow. thing. So they said there's, it's possible that you got bit again by, you know, a tick or a mosquito and you got a new case of anaplasmosis. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, because oh I went into a different doctor. We're going to skip timeline. I went into a different doctor and I said, this is Lyme disease, but it's not Lyme. Like this is, I've never had this before, whatever this is. And it turned out that it was anaplasmosis, which is also a tick forward vector. Oh my gosh. So they don't automatically test for that when you, when they see a tick bite? No. Okay. No. And there's, there's, uh, when you go in, like if you had a tick and you removed it, they usually don't even test at all. They just give you a week or two of doxycycline and say, okay, come back if you don't get better, which wow. it sounds horrific, but that's probably the better way to do it because it takes weeks for your body to make antibodies. And that's what they're testing for. So okay. where it gets into that rocky water for people that are immunocompromised and don't know it is that if they're only testing for antibodies, you might not ever have them. Not sure. never, not ever have them. <laughs> you might not ever have them. Nicole knows about not having antibodies and B cells. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That stuff. She goes mm -hmm. through all of that. Yep. Yeah. 
So if you don't ever have a reaction, your IgG is never going to blip that you were bitten, Mm -hmm. but you could be symptoms. And I clearly was bit by a tick. I mean, I know you guys can't see me on the, on the podcast, but it was like my whole, my whole rib cage, like from boob to almost my, my hip, like was the EM rash, which is the classic bullseye with the center and the white and everything, the rings and everything. (sighs) So, I mean, as a medical doctor anywhere in the United States, how can you look at that and tell the person they don't have Lyme disease? Yeah, because like, how can you see that and be like, oh, it's still, we're still questioning it. I agree, because that's, that's like (laughs) the classic sign. Mm -hmm. And only like 40% of people get that. So you can't even use that as the textbook because so many people get all, everything else and just not that rash. They don't react in that way. Oh, oh wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of scary. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was always told growing up, you know, growing up in the Midwest, you are always told to look out for ticks, check your body. Absolutely. For ticks when you come inside. We used to hang out at a lot of forest preserves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you were always checking each other, you know, like, like you'd see the monkeys in the zoo checking each other. Well, that's what we did. We'd go through our hair and check our bodies for tick mm-hmm. bites um, and ticks themselves and especially owning dogs. Ugh, so many ticks. Um, but we were always told, look for the rash. The rash mm-hmm. is going to be the sign. And now, now knowing that it's only 40%, yeah, you've got to look for other things scary so you saw this doctor he gave you antibiotics they found all these things then then were you getting better or were you continuing to just get worse or status quo I would get better and then you would plateau and the they would see what symptoms were left and he would check up he would um, change up the medicine so I would always be on two antibiotics and an anti-parasitic um, at the same time. And there was always an antibiotic that could jump the, the blood brain barrier. So to prevent neurological Lyme, cause I was having neurological symptoms. I was mm. forgetting words. I lost short-term memory. Um, I was having issues with replacing words. Um, if I was too fatigued, it was as if I was drunk where my significant other would have to pick me up after, you know, a 10 hour work shift and leave my car there because I physically it was like I was drunk or hungover and couldn't drive. And there was nothing wrong with me. Like I hadn't been drinking. I wasn't diabetic. I wasn't going into sugar coma. Like, but I would be like blurry vision, headache, not able to concentrate, shaky. And it's like, you can't get behind a wheel. Like if you're like no, that. So, no. you know, and again, like I wasn't being dramatic. I'm going, I'm unsafe. Like I can't get yeah. behind the wheel and drive 45 minutes home. Come get me. That's well, that's better to. than you actually going, I'll just suck it up and try to drive. No, Cause there was no sucking it up. You, yeah. you can't like, you could have hurt somebody. Yeah. So yeah. At my worst, I was hiding high. I worked in theater. So I worked for a very good, a very good theater. They know who they are. <laughs> um, <laughs> where, they said I could do anything as long as I wasn't on camera. So there were days I had to go to work. I was a young mom. I had to pay for my therapy. I didn't have insurance for the first three weeks. Um, and I had to pay for it on my own. So it was a big thing. I got Medi-Cal, uh, Medicaid, sorry. Um, cause it was New York, but, um, for, I would literally fall down behind the curtains and lie in a ball mm. if, if I didn't need to do anything. Like if I didn't have a task and I wasn't doing lights and I wasn't doing sound and I, I didn't have any tasks and the client was happy, 
I would literally fall down behind a, a, a leg, a curtain and curl up in a ball and wait for somebody to tell me that I needed to do something. And oh they, they just said, don't, just don't be on camera. Just be safe. Just don't be on camera. It was so painful and so exhausting. And this was during treatment, during treatment. Yeah. Well, so and, part and of, I don't think people understand how physically draining it is too, to be a stage manager. I, I've done stage manager managing for events and it is draining and you are, you know, you're constantly, what's my next assignment? Where do I need to go? Who do I need to get? What do I need mm-hmm. to do? And so that on top of all the, the Lyme disease symptoms, yeah. I can't even imagine how you were remotely functional. Yeah. So at that theater, I was, I wasn't a stage manager. I was a, just a stage hand. So I was part of a team. Um, but the acceptance of it was amazing because part yeah. of my treatments when, when we plateaued from the antibiotics and the antiparasiticals and I, and I got to a certain point and I didn't get better, we switched to IV therapy, which was in the office every day. Uh, so it was about a 45 minute bag of, of, of liquid medicine IV into um, a port um, in my arm. And uh, it had to be every day in the office to be covered by insurance. So it was just like a, a $20 copay. So that was a blessing. But it made me late for work. If my call was 8 a.m. or 7 a.m., I had to do that before because the office would be closed when, by the time I get out of work. So I was constantly late to work. I had permission, but, you know, try to walk into a team of 20 or 30 people and you're the only one that's late, you know, things like that. And it was very like union mindset of like, they would wait on the dock for the person that closed their car at 801, like that kind of thing. Like it was that kind of workplace. And so if you're the the woman, (laughs) the young Mm -hmm. woman who's always late, that was a very uncomfortable place to be for a while because- I'm sure. You know, they don't need to know my business. They don't need. They didn't need to know that, that I was under this treatment. Most of them did, um, but uh, it, you know, it's just it's just very difficult trying to hold your own and stay employed when you can barely function. Very true. Let alone as a woman, which Absolutely. is probably a whole nother podcast. But <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, you are. You're right. Well, I mean, I, it, there's a significant percentage of, of people diagnosed with chronic illness are women. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's well over the majority. Yeah. I think it's like in the 72% or something like that. Yeah. Somewhere between 70 and 80% is Mm -hmm. I remember the last time I looked, but I don't want to be quoted on that because I don't know for sure. Um, But I think it's in that percentage. And so that, that's really hard because women are already looked upon differently in the workplace. And you're Mm -hmm. right. That's a whole other podcast. But now you've got the the people looking at women differently in the workplace and the chronic illness that's kind of making you late, making you not be able to do certain tasks. And that becomes really rough. Before the rise of all this social media and before TikTok, and I think I, but Facebook was barely a thing. Like Facebook was on the upswing or Meta was on the upswing. But um, the advice for women who were sick was before you go to a new doctor, don't shower, don't look pretty, go in pajamas. Like that's right. Make it, make a physical representation of how, how you, you feel, feel and how Absolutely. you can't do self care because mm-hmm. every person I know would take a shower before going out and would put on the minimum makeup for, for their own to like, say, I got to do this. I got to do this. And they would look, they would look presentable and you just can't, you just can't to be taken seriously. You have to show them at your worst and say, this is it and, and help me. I mean, I've had doctors because I tend to have that 
customer service, peppy mentality. You know, when I go out places, mm-hmm. I've had doctors dismiss me because I seem too happy and too normal to be sick. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's not until it's I start yelling or mm-hmm. like, well, what other people call yelling. I don't think I'm yelling, but I think I'm being very firm. It's until I start pushing back really hard or actually start to cry that they finally take it seriously. And I'm like, why is that making you take it seriously? I'm telling you how I can't live my life. Mm-hmm. But it's unfortunately, they're looking for some emotional response. And I mean, I went to my grandfather's funeral and someone asked me how I was. I'm like, peach keen. And I'm like, wait, why did I say that? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm way too used to customer service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just something that came out of my mouth. I think you were there, Nicole. I was like, I'm doing great. (laughs) We build walls to exist because I, I was trying to explain pain tolerance to someone that it like the pain scale is one to 10. And somebody said to them that their pain was a 14 and they're like, that's impossible. The scale is one to 10. And I asked them and I was like, haven't, haven't you ever been at a 10 and then still had to do something? 14 is what happens to the 10 after you did the thing that you were not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And, and that is our daily life. Like when you get up at a four and you know, by the end of the day, you're going to be a seven and you only go back to being a five when you wake up the next day, that's an endless cycle of elevation. And there's, yeah. how do you get out of that? How exactly? I don't answer the question when they ask me a pain scale. I'm like, don't ask me that. Ask me how my pain is impacting my life. And oh, I'm going to write that down. And it's because I, cause I, and I always say your, your eight is not my eight. If I'm mm-hmm. at an eight, I'm curled up in a ball. I know what a 10 feels like. I, and like most days I'm at like what I consider a four or five and other people would be in bed. So I'm like, don't ask me that. Just ask me how my pain is impacting my life. Ask me what things it's affecting. Mm-hmm. That's going to give you a better description of what my pain is doing to me. This is very different than going to the emergency room and having a broken arm, which yeah. I mean, yeah. never ask you what your pain scale is there either, but yeah, it's not like that. This is a chronic thing and people with chronic illness dismiss their pain so much more often than mm-hmm. people who don't like other people. If they all of a sudden today felt the way I do would be non-functional. Yeah. But eventually they would learn to do exactly what all of us just talked about doing working through the pain, getting yeah. through the pain. And the thing with Lyme and the co-infections is not to, not to take anything away from anybody else's chronic illness, because we're all dealing with quality of life issues and pain issues and cognitive issues with yeah. the Lyme and the co-infections. It's not always just pain. Like their classics, their classic questionnaire is joint pain. Do you have muscle fatigue? Do you have this? My, I ended up having a heart attack by the end of this. Like mm. I, I had, um, I tried to go in the ocean when my, when my, um, nerves were on basically on fire and it just felt like I was having a thousand needles stabbing me all over the, it was felt like my whole body was asleep and got slapped in the face by, by a wave kind of thing. Mm. Um, I ended up having a heart attack and they couldn't find what was wrong with me. And it ended up, it was electrical because one of the Lyme disease symptoms is myocarditis. And basically the top there's a specific part of the heart that's, that's responsible for the electrical communication between the top half and the bottom half. And, and mine had stopped working so long, I had heart damage, which is basically a heart, it's a heart attack, it's an MI. I had scarring, I had the, the, um, the enzymes that, that from the heart damage, 
and I'm 36 years old going, the only thing wrong with me is Lyme disease. And they kept asking me if I did cocaine. Oh my gosh. That's that's one of the only reasons that the healthy 36 year old has a heart attack. That's right. And I'm like, I'm not a healthy 36 year old. I have Lyme disease. And I kept trying to explain to them that there, that I was never diagnosed with cardiac issues as a Lyme patient, but that doesn't mean that that's not what caused the heart attack. Sure. You know, and the other issues are cognitive. I was losing words. I was losing short-term memory. I couldn't learn new things. So like being a stage manager, when you have five new acts in a weekend, how do you greet them if you don't know who they are? Yeah. <laughs> I, get that. I get that so much. Uh, edit that out if you need to. But like, really? So one of, um, one of the stagehands that I worked with, I, t- I told him how scared I was of that. And he said, fake it till you make it. He's like, carry that clipboard around and just mm-hmm. do the best you can. And, you know, we've got your back. And it's, yeah. how do you, I learned, how do you I do learned your job right if you everything literally now. don't? If you don't have cognitive function, yeah. how does anyone do any job? That's very true. They don't. they don't. It's a struggle. And I think that is actually a whole other podcast we we need to do also another episode of like, how do you function working when, when you're- you can't function? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, there there's so many things that go into that. But I mean, yeah, Lyme disease is definitely, I, I've heard a number of people talk about the effect it has cognitively on, on the brain. And mm-hmm. it's as someone with EDS who took gabapentin and it sent me deeper into cognitive issues than I should have. Um, I hated it. I hated every second of it. You know, I couldn't remember words. I was stumbling over them. So when you say all those things, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I kind of relate to that. Mm-hmm because I, I just couldn't think of things. I would sit there for a few minutes and I, I'd stop mid-sentence because I couldn't think of the simplest word in the vocabulary. Yeah. And it was terrifying for me. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah, and the, the emotional dysregulation is really bad. I've gotten better at communicating and I've also, I think I'm kind of in a remission where I'm controlling the inflammation with things like diet and alternative lifestyle and things like that. So I'm kind of doing my own way of, putting my fight or flight at ease to ease my symptoms. But it was years of really tough communicating with my husband to keep that relationship going because um, I, we, we talk, I had missed the first date and the first date with you guys for the podcast. And I had said, this is like, we should talk about this because it affects other people. Being this sick all the time, any chronic illness, and it involving physical weakness, unpredictability, mood changes, um, and, and just even temperature dysregulation about whether or not you want to go outside and feel the wind, that kind of thing, it affects other people and it loses relationships. I've lost friends who didn't understand it. I, um, I would have to explain to my husband while I was in a lot, it's literally called Lyme rage, you know, screaming at him over something so insignificant going, listen to what I'm saying, not how I'm saying it. <laughs> like, listen to my words. Cause the emotion is real but it's not, I'm not presenting it correctly. Like these are how we used to have to communicate because I wanted to stay married. <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, lucky for you, you got someone who is willing to work with you through that. Yeah, a hundred percent. So things like Lyme rage is completely real and you have no control over it at all. Mm. And so, you know, it's all these things that are combined that people well, don't also, understand. Though, thinking about it, we're living in a hypersensitive world right now. Mm-hmm. 
everyone is offended by everything. I'm going, guys, can we focus on the big issues to get offended by? But, But the fact that like, when you say Lyme rage, I can't, I'm thinking to some people in my head of people I've known that even when you're firm, they think you're yelling at them. I can't even imagine what they would do in the face of Lyme rage. <laughs> but, you know, you'd have to, it, it's like, I'm not meaning to scream. Yeah. But just deal with the issue we got to deal with. I think I've only done it a couple of times in, in work and it was back in the beginning. So it was like when I, back in New York and back in theater. So New York, New Yorkers take everything with a little grain of salt, but it was, you know, the looks I got from some of my coworkers was like, she's lost it. I had, I had lost it. There was no control over the level of frustration that I was feeling. Yeah. And you don't want to have to wear a sign on you all the time that says, I have Lyme disease. Please be patient with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's really rough. And it's also hard because people... uh, underestimate you or overestimate you. I don't know which upsets me more. I was stage managing a person and I was feeling horrible. And uh, it, was a, it was a cabaret and she was visiting where we were. So it was the same music festival I got sick. So it was, it was yeah. the, I think it was the next summer. So I was still in okay. antibiotic treatment and things like that. And she said, she started talking about, you know, ticks and stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I actually have Lyme disease and, and some other things going on. And she goes, how do you feel? And I went, oh, oh, I'm about, you know, 75, 80%. And she just, her jaw dropped. And she goes, I'd hate to see you at 100%. Because from her perspective, I was rocking it. Like I was, you know, leading everybody, telling everybody what to do, being a, being a great leader, stage managing, you know, had a smile on my face, hospitality, customer service, as you put it, like to her, because she was the artist. And she just said, like, I'd hate to see you at 100 if this is what you think 80 is. And I was like... I, okay, I guess that's a good I, thing. I guess like, it's a compliment. Yeah, I'd rather be at a hundred because I would wouldn't feel crappy. Right, but, that's you know? that's really key. It's like I'm glad you see it that way, but I still feel bad all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember the last time I felt a hundred percent. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. I don't know either. May I might have been ten. <laughs> so I think now I'm like I might have been around ten or eleven. <laughs> that's good level of self awareness, though. That's, that's... Yeah. Well, the, I think chronic illness <laughs> makes you look at yourself and be more self aware because you you're always being asked how are you feeling, how are you doing, what's happening, and you know how's the medicine working. So you start to get almost sometimes hyper aware of how of, of what's happening in your body and yourself. Mm-hmm. To a point where I think we are much more in touch with our bodies now than when we were when we felt healthier. Mm-hmm. Because we have to pay attention to even some subtle changes yeah. that, that happen to us. Because you never know now if that subtle change is actually something pretty big. Yeah. That's it's why I track a lot of my symptoms. It's why we created the the planner that we did is so people because I can't remember at all anymore. I, don't I love know. your planner, by the way. Thank you. I haven't gotten it yet, but it's, I love your plan. As long as you use it, it's amazing. I don't yeah. know to log stuff in it, but when I have a symptom, I'm always logging that because then I go back to my doctor, especially my cardiologist. And I'm like, I had this, this, and this symptom. And some are very minor and some are bigger, but some, I've had a few of those minor things mm-hmm. like 
my resting heart rate went over a hundred a few times in like a four week span for my Apple watch. And he's like, no, we need to check that. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I just brought it up because I thought it was odd, but I just thought it was part of the issues I have with my heart that are related to the chronic illness. And he's like, they may be, but it could mean it's getting worse. And I'm like, because, mm-hmm. you know, you always want things that are wrong. That's with just heart. what you want to hear. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we just, you know, and so I think we become hypersensitive to anything that's happening with our bodies. Um, so they had you on all these antibiotics, you'd plateau, they'd put you on other antibiotics. Yeah. So they would mix it up. Is that just continuing now or have they found other treatments? No, it was for the first four years. So I did, um, things like doxycycline, minocycline, amoxicillin. I was on three grams of penicillin for a while, which is, you know, three 1000 milligram pills. Um, and I went to the hospital for something else. I think I had cut my thumb and they were asking medications and the guy actually had to leave and Google Lyme disease because he was like, why are you on this three much? grams of penicillin? <laughs> and I was like, and I explained to him and he had no idea. And he was like, okay. And he walked away and looked it up. But at least he did that instead oh, of just 100%. missing it. hundred percent. Yeah. Good for good on him. Yeah. They mixed it up with lo- all these, the right. Fampin, Alinea, things like that. And then when I kind of plateaued and, um, a bunch of, he clearly saw that a lot of my symptoms were the Lyme disease and not the parasitic. He went to the IV ceftriaxone, which was, you know, sitting in the chair for 45 minutes a day and getting an IV right into my arm. Um, For like three weeks, we tried to do it at home uh, because I didn't have insurance. So it was cheaper for me to just purchase the bags, uh, like pay for the prescription myself and, and do it in a port. Um, but there was always something wrong with the port. It was always slipping oh. out and I'd have to go in anyway. So we just went to the office and it was better. Um, but I did get to a certain point. I think it was the summer that I was, you know, 80%. And I just had to call it quits and say, I'm going to try to do this on my own at home. And I started playing around with supplements and buying like Dr. Horowitz's books, things like that, um, to try to heal myself. I did a lot with diet. I did a lot with um mindfulness which is also probably another <laughs> podcast somebody take notes um, oh yeah no it's on our list of things to do because there, yeah. there's the concept of like right now everyone's talking about toxic positivity and how if you have trauma that's not the way to go because it's you know positivity doesn't erase all the trauma but um i was going to a holistic physical therapist in the late 2000s helping me with lymph drainage because my system was completely overloaded with all the stuff that wasn't being filtered out. I couldn't filter it all out. All the stuff was dying and I I couldn't get it out of my system. So I would go and and get help. And she was really ahead of her time reading books that nobody else was reading. And it was all about how part of chronic illness is our own mentality towards it. And some people, I did a TikTok, some people are not ready to hear that. I wasn't ready to hear that. I was like, not nice word. You're, you're just, you're discarding my, my, what I feel. And, and she's like, no, I'm saying it's very real, but we do have on a cellular level, some control over our pain receptors and our happy chemicals. And sometimes you just have to start with that and see what kind of falls into place and see. It's not to- she's not talking about toxic positivity. She's yes. talking about kind of being realistic with yourself mm-hmm. and, and healing yourself in ways too. It's there, there's a, there's a fine line sometimes, but very, it's yeah. not, there's a difference between toxic positivity and changing your mindset. Yes. 
Yeah. She was definitely talking about changing your mindset, but the, the most recent things that I've seen is people are taking that as toxic positivity of like, oh, everything has to have a silver lining. And it's like, no, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that you're trying to talk your body out of the constant fight or flight. So you start processing your cortisol and your dopamine and everything as not always the sky is falling. And if once you start to try to change that part of the mindset, your body gets a moment of going, oh, my pain is now a three instead of a five, like, because it is no longer waiting for the truck to hit, like, kind yes. of situation. And it's not, and, and like you said, it's going from like a, a five to a three. It's not mm-hmm. going to go from like, it's not necessarily going to take you from a five to a zero. No, no. no. I think too many people take it that way. Of yeah. that mindfulness. And they don't even want to try because they think right. that you're ignoring the fact that they're in pain. And it's like, right. no, but you can make it a little better. You can, you can, you know, if you're willing to take all of these pills, there was, there was one time where I posted, um, my day, my day was 56 pills between supplements, antibiotics, acidophilus, like probiotics, things like that. It was 56 in one day. And I, and, and I was like, if you, if I'm willing to take 56 pills, why can't I also try to enjoy the bird singing? Exactly. Why, why am I so anti feeling nice? Like, why am I so fighting like, it's okay to also think about not being in pain. Like, you get stuck in that mindset of, of being sick that it becomes a, a part of you, but it doesn't have to be the only part of you. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so, so you started doing that. How, how did the mindfulness help you? Like, what, what did it do for you? I think that's why I'm able to focus on so many other things now. Um, because I'm taking care of two other people in my life that, that I love so much and I have to keep it together for them. So it's kind of my own little mantra of, I need to be okay to help them be okay. And, uh, it really got me to the point where I can keep my issues at bay in order to, to continue functioning because, I still have pain every day and I still get uncomfortable every day and I still have undiagnosed IBS symptoms and I have, you know, an implanted heart monitor and all these things. So obviously my, my illness didn't go away, but, um, the mindset really makes a difference of how, how you get up in the morning and you start to navigate everything. It really has made a difference. Yeah. And and then it, by being able to do that, I'm sure it improved your relationships at home too. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Very much so. We're nauseatingly communicative in our house. <laughs> People go bleh when they then they hear us. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. We have to tell each other all that stuff. Exactly. Oh, we do the like, I appreciate you, honey. Thank you so much for blah blah blah. Like we do that all the time. And it just makes life so much better because then you don't have to worry about whether or not they think you appreciated it because you said it. Yeah. People yeah. should say things more often. Like I agree. Yeah, it really absolutely. makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I forget sometimes like when I'm in like a really stress out moment, I forget to say thank you. And I hate that. I forget to do that mm-hmm. sometimes. Cause like two days later, I'll be like, Oh my gosh, I didn't say thank you. And I'll suddenly like shoot off an email. Hey, I think I forgot to say thank you, but you, you did a great job or something. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah. Because people need to say it more often. People need to feel appreciated in yeah. your life, especially the people that stick by you when you're, when you have a chronic illness, because like, like you said, you lose friends, you lose like family doesn't always understand. So 
telling people you appreciate them being there with you and, and helping you um, can really can really just make a difference in your life. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you did all that, like, and you're using, you're continuing to use all of that. Now, what, what advice would you give people if they, they identify with your symptoms or identify, or they're like, well, maybe I did have a tick bite. Like, what would you tell people about a diagnosis process? When should they get checked out for that? How should they talk to doctors about that? Um, I, I always try to tell people to really be informed before they go to the doctor, because most doctors don't know about it. So if you go into the doctor's office prepared going, this is the description of Lyme disease and the co-infections. This is the, this is the chart. And these are how many of my symptoms match up. I would like to be evaluated. And the key word is evaluated, not tested because most people don't show up with testing, but according to the new medical journal, they have to do it symptomatically. They, 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 they can do the testing, but they can't diagnose you based on a negative test. If you have 95% of the symptoms, they are allowed to treat you as if the test came back positive. So that is a big thing to say that I want to be evaluated as opposed to being tested. Is there um, harm in getting treated for Lyme disease if you don't have it? Like, is there a harm in that? I'm just curious. You may not have that answer. <laughs> well, I mean, it goes back to the 80s where they were like, uh, they stopped prescribing antibiotics for everything yeah. because they're like, you're all going to become resistant. And then everyone was sick. Yeah. <laughs> all the oh yeah. I remember because they yeah. just stopped doing it. You like, know, oh, and you that's not good either. Here's an antibiotic. Oh, you're sneezing. Here's an antibiotic. Oh, they were doing it all the time. Yeah. Oh, you have two pimples. Yeah. Here's an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to be on antibiotics for, yeah. um, like preventing of pneumonia, which is common in lupus patients. And I was like, no way in hell am I going to be yeah. on a consistent antibiotic for something I do not have. No, yeah. I mean, I had no. numbers, I had scores of friends that were on antibiotics for acne. Yep. So they were I. teenagers yeah. and they did I not mean, have severe acne. Like it just, it was crazy how they overprescribed it. So yeah. I guess so, so is there a danger? Uh, yes. But knowing your diagnosis can also help you in other ways if you don't want to be on long-term antibiotics, because at least you will have lots of um, books and other knowledgeable doctors that can teach you how to manage the symptoms, the inflammation, um, it can lead you down other rabbit holes. Like I just found out that I might have EDS, um, uh, mm -hmm. which is probably one of the reasons why immune system is weak. Um, you know, lots of other things. It can lead you down to why you're sick. And then if you, if you kind of button up those things, it can relieve the actual Lyme disease symptoms. Right. Um, but the thing that I always go through with people when my friends go, oh, that sounds like me. Oh, that sounds like me. Oh, I thought that was normal. I make them take the Dr. Horowitz questionnaire. And it's okay. like a multi-system something, something questionnaire. I can find it. Maybe we can do a link in the podcast later or something. Yeah, I'd um, love to do that. But it basically is like 80 or 90 questions of all the symptoms, some from neurological to cardiac to um, inflammation to joints to pain, everything. And it goes through all of them. And it says, okay, out of 65, you scored 117 maybe you should talk to your doctor about Lyme disease. Like that, it's like that kind of thing. Right. So it, it, you know, odds are everybody's going to have one or two things. And there's the odds are that a, a lot of people are going to have like a couple of different things. But if you have five things from every column and they're all, you know, chronically every day or five times a week, then odds are something is going on. 
you know, some, I, something I mean, that is going on. I just ask that because I know a lot of people with EDS are misdiagnosed mm-hmm. with Lyme disease, like a lot, because I think a lot of the symptoms overlap. So um, I know that several, like you had a very clear tick bite, which led to a Lyme disease diagnosis, but some people haven't. Mm-hmm. And so the doctors, for some reason, especially in the Midwest, go straight to Lyme disease because ticks are so prevalent. Mm-hmm. So they go straight to Lyme disease instead of looking at well, it could also be Ehlers-Danlos because, by the way, I have to tell so many doctors what Ehlers-Danlos is. Yes. <laughs> you know, so sometimes it just depends on what's fresher in their minds. And then later on, a lot of people diagnosed with Lyme will say, oh, but then I was diagnosed with EDS. See, that's interesting because they have found Lyme disease as a comorbidity to a lot of things. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the chicken or the egg where if you have EDS and you have connective tissue issues and you have, which causes inflammation and, and right. all, all those other issues that weakens your immune system. It weakens your flow. It weakens your cerebral fluid flow. It, 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 it's really a link and it's kind of really hard to decipher comorbidities because there's been, and again, I'm not an expert. I'm just a person that's read a lot of books. And it's been my life since 2006. So don't quote me on these. I'm not, you know, Google scholar, but I, I, I go from medical journals to to books and there's been research done on, on Alzheimer's cadavers where a hundred percent of them had Lyme disease, uh, spirochetes. And it's kind of like, did they really have Alzheimer's or dementia or did they have untested Lyme disease that got into their brain? You know, things like that. There has been, um, Uh, There was one, it was really small. So again, like they need more research, but it was like 30 psych patients that got better that like were healed from their mental illness because they're, they were given dental surgeries and they were on antibiotics for the dental surgery. You know, like some, some people with weakened immune system, you have to be on antibiotics two weeks before Mm -hmm. and two weeks after, Mm -hmm. and then your mental illness goes away and you can be released back into society. How often does that happen? Not that often, but needs to definitely be looked at. You know, like clearly the antibiotics did something that has nothing related to mental illness. You know, it's all those studies that there are so many comorbidities that we don't know the chicken or the egg, what came first. It's so very true. And if you don't have a physician that actually looks at all your systems and is willing to take into, you know, consideration you as a whole, you probably aren't going to get a correct diagnosis. It's going to probably be a long time. Correct. I decided during COVID that I was going to do a lot of self-care. I had insurance. Everybody had the time. (laughs) We had more time on our hands um, from being home and virtual that I was going to do a lot of my self-care. I've been going to a GI doctor for a year and a half and she's ready to pawn me off on somebody else. And that's a specialist because she can't (laughs) find out what's wrong with me. Things Uh like that. By the way, that was my GI specialist. She, she, I'm fine. I'm looking for a new GI specialist now. Oh my didn't I maybe it's a thing there where they can't figure out what's wrong they don't want to talk to you I I appreciate it though I mean if a doctor says I don't know and I don't I'm not I don't think I can figure it out I appreciate that I would rather you tell me that and I can move on oh my doctor wouldn't message me back oh no I know but I'm saying in general you've heard me talk about that like but yeah. if you're, I, yeah, the, one of the rheumatologists I saw was like, I think it's EDS, but I'm not a specialist yep. in that. Go see these people who will know more. And that's what I did. Yeah, I agree with that. But like, like my doctor literally said, I, I'm, I'm tapped out. Yeah. Like she tested me for maybe four things over and over again for an entire year, expecting the results to be different. Um, and after about a year and a half, she was like, mm, 
I think I'm going to send you to, to X because I'm, you know, that's pretty my specialty. So I'm, you know, like I'm done. I, I don't have any more yeah. ideas. And but I, she, you know, at least she's kind of said it like, yeah, yeah I've had doctors say that to me and I'm like, I appreciate it. Yep. I'm like, yeah. I don't want you to treat me if you're not going to look into it. And mm-hmm. I, I would rather have you be honest with me so I can move the hell on. Yeah. I don't want to see a doctor that's not doing anything for me. You know what I mean? I think it's that they just don't talk to each other at all. There's that no functional true. medicine mentality. So I, I most recently got sent to a gynecologist from the GI doctor because right. they're, they're wondering why I'm not absorbing iron and they want to find out if it's a different issue. Um, I was most recently sent to a dermatologist for something, which I think is GI related because it's for a candida type rash, like a skin candida rash, mm-hmm. which is also GI related. Um, I have cardiac issues, so I'm going to a cardiologist. But anytime I need a referral to anything, I still have to go back to the PCP and explain to him what's going on. And no one talks to each other. Once you get that referral, my cardiologist doesn't talk to my GI doctor. My GI doctor is never going to talk to my gynecologist about whether or not they thought that's the iron issue. You know, it, there's no there's no intermingling of departments. And how do you get a full body treatment? And all of those things are EDS. Like, mm-hmm. you know? like I, I go to UCLA, USC, and mm-hmm. Providence. I see doctors at all of them because I'm trying to see the best doctors I can. Now, USC. UCLA and Providence use the MyChart app so they can see each other's tests and notes mm-hmm. things, but USC does not. So anything that happens with my doctors at USC, I have to let the other doctors know. It's like you become the center of your own care. And I'm like, wait, when did this happen? Well, it's so hard too. I mean, if you, doctors don't have the time people think they do for the most part, and it really is yeah. really hard for them to talk to each other. It just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. I've, I've worked in the medical field for 25 years. I can tell you it's not realistic, but they yeah. need to, patients need to be better at saying, I, ha- I used to see it with patients all the time. Do you have any other doctors? Do you have any other conditions? Um, yeah, I see some kind of doctor, not really sure what kind. And it was a huge, important deal. And I'm like, you left something out of your care that impacted the rest of your care. You need, yeah. to, you need to know what's going on with your body. Yes. It's important to know when to tell someone something and when not yes. to. That was the point yes. of the TikTok I did the other day when someone asked if they had to tell their doctor when their last menstrual cycle was. And I said, no, but, but. If it's directly mm-hmm. related. Could if impact your care. Related to what you, the care you need, that's different, you know, in all yeah. this wake of Roe v. Wade, people are very concerned and Mm -hmm. it's a legitimate concern. And I'm like, you don't have to tell your doctor anything. You don't have to have your blood pressure taken. You don't have to have your weight taken, but if it's something that you're concerned about or related to your care, it's going to hinder you to not. It is. Yeah. There's a lot of things you don't have to do, but a doctor can also tell you, I'm not going to see you as a patient. And I guarantee you if a patient walked in my office and was like, I'm not going to give you a blood pressure or menstrual cycle. I mean, unless I was in one of those States, I would say, I'm not going to see you. You need to leave because these are things I need about you to know about you. Yeah. There are other things that I didn't realize that I hope might help somebody from this podcast is that, um, doctors don't always ask exactly what they mean. And if you're yeah. neurodivergent, you don't know how to answer that. So, true. so I got not yelled at, but like in my chart, it was like, please note that the patient did not, you know, forgo this information earlier. And it was because of the way that she had asked the questions. Yes. So if you're going into the GI doctor for constipation, diarrhea and malabsorption issues, and she goes, what are your symptoms? I'm going to tell her my potty symptoms. I'm not going to think that my my the fact that my lymphs don't drain 
or that I get migraines or that I, um, you know, have a cardiac problem. Like, I don't think, I don't see, I'm the patient. I don't see how that relates to the information she needs to know about, did I poop yesterday? You know, like I'm, I'm just a patient at that point. And I, I saw her for like six months and then I mentioned my lymph system and I was like, do you think that could be related? And she got all upset with me that I had never mentioned this dramatic symptom before. And I'm like, how would I know as the, I didn't go to medical school for eight years. I didn't do a residency. I don't, I don't know the, in, what my insides look like, except for Google. Like, how would I know that my lymph system might be affecting my, 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 whether I have diarrhea? Like, how would I know that? I, I take going to the doctor as I'm going to do a data dump for you and you tell me what's pertinent and what's not. Oh, and, I love it. Yep. That's what I do. Like, yeah. And so if they're asking me, what are your symptoms? I'm like, do you just want to know what I think are these? Or do you want to know everything? Cause I'll tell you everything, but we're going to be yeah. here a while. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's the new way to do it because I had no idea that they, when they said symptoms, they wanted to know that your Everything. ears ring, like that your ears, but like, I didn't know that when they said, what are your symptoms? Especially if you're going to a specialist, like yeah. reverse. If I'm going to a cardiologist for palpitations, I'm not going to think that I'm going to tell her I'm constipated because how would that be related? But it is. But it is. <laughs> and that's, that's what I think as lay people, we're, we're not, we aren't told to do that. We are, nobody tells you that you should just lay it all out for your doctor, yeah. for every doctor you see. And by the way, that gets old after a while too. Yes. I'm sorry. The 17th doctor I've seen and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go down all this, all the things. And it, does, it gets old things. It gets, it gets very old. old. Yeah. And none of them talk to each other, even if they have the, my chart and all of the online virtual mm-hmm. things, they don't, they don't talk to each other or nope. they don't think it's important. I know someone um, very close to me that just had a brain scan and it said that they had a cyst on their brain. Now you would think that even if it's not important, it's important. Like somebody would mention it, at least have a conversation going, is there anything else you're not telling me just to make sure? Not even a conversation. I found this result like six months later and I said, did anyone ever talk to you about this? And they said, no. Did anyone ever mention this to you? They said, no, they just told me it was normal. So we're going to the doctor and they're going to have an advocate because they are having, having they're having lots of symptoms that are related to cerebral fluid and brain function and all of these things. And it could be related. And the doctor has never once asked him any question, follow-up question. That's so terrible. Yeah. Because I don't think having a cyst on your brain is normal. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Here's most of them are, most people have them. I did, I did look it up medically, like medical journals, not just Google, like actual scholar. And most people have them, but if they're asymptomatic, they're fine. Mm-hmm. But this person is not asymptomatic. They're having left eye issues, headaches, oh, uh, yeah. fluid issues, all these things. And I'm like, do you need, we need to follow up because doctors Heck aren't yes. paying attention. They're right. not paying attention. You don't have We're time though, either to pay attention. And that's, that goes back to the flaws in our healthcare system is yep. that they have their quotas they need to meet for the day. They have you know, it, it's insurance companies and, and healthcare companies that are run by bureaucrats and businessmen should not be in the business of making medical nope. decisions. Um, and it's terrible. Like the best care I've gotten is because I paid extra to go right. to a practice that doesn't take as many patients. So I pay a membership fee. It is worth every penny of that membership fee to scrape that membership fee together, together to go there because I get 
full-blown care from my, my primary care physicians. Like they take the time, they look at everything, they read the notes, they follow up and it's worth the money for me to get that kind of care. I know a couple other people um, that do it and they, they get amazing, amazing care from like concierge doctors and stuff, but we shouldn't have to pay that much money just to get someone no. to pay attention to us. No. Nope. But the care and the care in the United States is very, it's, it's, people don't get the same kind of care. It depends on what your insurance is. It depends. I tell people all the time, if you're an HMO or you're a PPO, um, if you're really sick and you can afford it, if you can afford it, you should not be an HMO. And a lot of times people don't look at me like I'm crazy and they're like, oh, you don't understand. And I was like, and they do it, they can afford it, but they still choose it. And I'm like, you don't understand how the medical system works. Yeah. And it's disgusting and it's not right, but that's the reality of it. I just had a friend switch to a PPO because she um, has discovered she's chronically ill and she was having such a problem getting referrals mm-hmm. to her, to different doctors. Mm-hmm. And it was getting like, you're already buried under so much medical stuff and then they have to keep going back. So she mm-hmm. switched over to a PPO and it is much more expensive. She knows she's lucky she can make that switch. Not everybody has that freedom. Nope. Yeah. And nope. the issue- Not everyone the- can afford it. The issue yeah. with the Lyme disease and the other co-infections is how you present it to your doctor as an active infection versus the, the I forget what they're calling it now, but like the chronic life, you know, yeah. I forget, um, post, post-Lyme disease syndrome or whatever it is these days, um, as, more like an active infection. So it really depends on how they write those notes for things like insurance to cover antibiotics or medicines. Oh yeah. Um, because if it's post Lyme disease syndrome, they're not going to pay for it because that's considered like, that's just how you are now. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, um, so with post, with post, post Lyme disease syndrome, they're saying basically that the bacteria and the other things are gone. And now it's just your body's inflamed and you have to deal with the oh, symptoms God. and it's not actually an active infection. Um, Cause you know, Lyme disease so, just disappears on people and you know, you, you don't deal with any effects that for the rest of your life. It's really, I mean, literally the bacteria is the same. It's not the same. Okay. So it's not literally the same. It's, um, but they're both spirochetes and they both can break the blood brain barrier and that is syphilis. So if somebody was walking around with syphilis and, and mental health issues and completely deranged, but you gave them their six week course of antibiotics, you wouldn't go, oh, it's cured. Right? <laughs> Cause clearly it's not. <laughs> so I, yeah, it's, it's that type of thing. And if you, if you look up spirochetes, you'll actually see that they're corkscrew and they can actually go into soft tissue. They can Blake, they can go through into your organs. Wow. Um, it can go right through into your brain. Um, I, I feel like if I, I want an eye doctor to put my eyeball under a microscope because my floaters are spirochetes, like I can, you know how you can see floaters and they're all, wow. they're all different depending on the person. I literally could draw it on a piece of paper for you and compare it to a spirochete and it would be the same picture. So wow. they're clearly still active inside my body, you know, yeah. and I, I took myself off. I will never donate blood, even though I can. So Lyme disease is not on the infectious disease list anymore. And legally, you can go and donate blood. And they test for Babesia, which is a tick co-infection. But if you're negative of Babesia, you can still donate blood and give it to somebody else. Oh, my gosh. And the same thing with organs. 
like if I had an organ donor card, they would take all of my organs and put it in somebody else. And I bet you buttons that they'd be sick in five to 10 years. Wow. It's I, crazy. I, it I, is I agree crazy. with you. Yeah, so but yeah, I, I made sure that I, I rescinded all of my, gay. yeah, I rescinded all of my organ donors. I res, I've never given blood. I, I refuse because I don't want anyone to have this unpredictable hell because if, then how would you even do diagnosis if you got it from a transfusion or you got it from a, an organ? How would you explain that to a doctor? They Very don't believe true. us. They That's don't believe right. us and we have the tick bite. Like yes. <laughs> how would they believe somebody that got an organ? Yeah, right? and, and you're going to look for Lyme disease. Exactly. They're, they're not exactly. That's not so, even going to be at the forefront of what they're thinking. If it's mm-hmm. an organ donation or blood transfusion, mm-hmm. that's so far yeah. from what they're thinking it could possibly be. And all these Correct. people potentially walking around out there with these undiagnosed diseases because yeah. no one thinks to think about this could be Lyme. Yes, and and when things like on the news go about like West Nile virus when mm-hmm. that was really big with mosquitoes, and I remember being in New York, it was still New York, it was the local channel news. And um, the doctor that I was seeing for Lyme disease, his office was 100% always full. Every single time I went in there, full, waiting room full, rooms full, people on IV therapy full. And the news was freaking out about nine people in the hospital with West Nile virus, you know, mosquito season. And I'm like, are you are you kidding me? <laughs> See, like, I, why are we not talking about the broader picture of, yes. of an endemic? Like, I, an endemic. I feel like in Chicago, they almost do at least a couple news reports every summer on Lyme disease and yeah. tick-borne illnesses. We do. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, it's it's more frequent to talk about there. Um, I think it is. there's just a, yeah. such a prevalence of ticks from that area. But here in California, I almost never hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, they're, it's they're everywhere. Focused on, they're focused on West Niles, Zika, Zika, whatever yeah. it is, and those type of things. Excuse me, they're, but they're not focused on Lyme disease at all. No, and there have been towns that have become sicker, like an entire generation is coming into their local country doctors, and they look it up. The doctors really try to figure out what's wrong with their town, because it would be 30, 40 people in, in, a, in a July coming in with all these crazy symptoms, and he found out that it was Lyme disease, and they were wow. trying to figure out what changed. And it was, there was a new migration pattern where um, a local lake had dried up and all of the birds were now landing in their town oh. as they migrated to Canada and then would migrate back. And they were actually bringing ticks into the area. So there had never been a tick population there and the migration pattern of birds had changed. I mean, this is how ridiculous people are. How can doctors follow this? Like we're talking like fly, not to insult anybody, but fly over cities. Like we're talking about like, mid United States that have never had tick issues and, and, and random flocks of birds are introducing it into the population. Like like you see, you see the random effects of some of the decisions our predecessors have made and some decisions, some of our current political persons have made. And like, it goes beyond just, oh, we're going to lose some trees or, you know, damages land it's changing everything for everyone like mm-hmm. exactly you know the lake dries up because of climate change changes the migration of birds mm-hmm. now people have Lyme disease yep so yeah but no one talks about that part no it's birds it's rats it's any animal that can have a tick can can move it from one location to another so yeah. you know people in New York City they have rats they have mice it's it's all the same you don't need a deer you don't need a dog. You don't need grass. 
anywhere that the animal has blood and it's warm blooded, that tick is going to find them because that's, that's, the, that's its meal. That's its, yeah. Bunch your blood, little vampire. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, um, we are kind of at time. So is there anything else you want to share with the, with everybody out there? I just want to validate everybody that thinks that their chronic pain isn't valid um, and people go, oh, I, I lose words all the time or, oh, I get headaches or, oh, and they kind of poo-poo it. You don't have to be in pain. You can, you can seek things out even without a diagnosis. You can get a massage. You can go to physical therapy. You can do things if you're financially able to or figure out a way, you know, sell your soul to Etsy. I don't know, but just you know, like your, your own journey to, to get to where you can be to survive, because you don't need a doctor to tell you that you're sick. If you know that you're not well, and that's, that's it. And just be well. Yeah. Do as much as you can. That doesn't need a doctor's intervention Mm -hmm. and it does help a little. Yeah. But I get it. All right. Well, thank you so much you. for being on the show. Yeah. And uh, this was fantastic. I actually learned a lot. Yes, absolutely. So we appreciate you coming on and we appreciate the information you are passing on to our listeners because I, again, think that Lyme is oftentimes just considered a illness you get after a tick bite and then you're all better. And mm. that's just not necessarily true. So I do appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and talk to us about this. Absolutely. Thank you. And we'll invite you back anytime. Absolutely. We've got so much to talk about. We won't I know. Get to this. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's like, well, we have enough for a podcast every week. Hmm. And then we're like, no, there's endless. I think you're good. I think you're good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And everyone listening, have a great week. Have a great week, you and guys. We appreciate you guys listening. Thanks. Bye.